So it's, it's two verses, and they have stuck out to me. In fact, the first of the two verses is truly... You already have a question, sir? I'll get you there. Patience, young Padawan. Um, the first of these two verses, and they're just two verses back to back, Colossians chapter 2, I'll give you that much. Colossians chapter 2, um, the first verse really is one of what I've given as two key verses for the book of Colossians. And the second one just follows on with it. So, without any further ado, let me read these, pray about it, and see if we can get where the Lord wants to take us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. Father, I love those words. Because it's something I can do. You didn't tell me to run. You didn't tell me to fly. You didn't tell me to charge. You didn't tell me to uh, do great heroic things. You just said, walk in Him. I can, I can do that, Lord. And I would pray that, that you would give tonight, that your Spirit would give us a dispensation of your grace. That each of us would hear, myself included, would hear what you want to say, what you want to speak to our hearts. You would direct our thoughts. And there may be something in these notes and in this teaching and in this processing, Father, that's completely other than what I was thinking. That's fine. Because it's Your Word and it's Your will that we want to align ourselves with. So Holy Spirit, we invite You to be in this place as we know You are, Lord Jesus. We have gathered in Your name. We invite You to speak to us, to touch hearts, to draw us closer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, question. Are you tired of being called millennials yet? Yes. You show of hands, I'm sick of the whole... Okay, good. Some of you maybe like it. Some of you are not millennials, you know. Here's the thing. Get used to it, because there's nothing you can do about it. You're born in a certain time frame, you're of that generation, the tag... Millennial, you're it. At least you're not like me, a boom Xer. <laughs> I'm a boom Xer. I, I literally was born in the crossover years between the baby boomers and Generation X. And there are some sociologists that would say, well, because of the actual date of my birth, 1964, because in 64, that was the tail end of the boomers that, Rick, you're really a boomer. And others would say, no, no, you're right on the front edge, you're, you're Generation X. And I actually related more to Gen X in many ways. I did youth ministry in the 80s and 90s with Gen X. I loved it. You know, I, I could relate. I got it. The, you know, the angst-filled, uh, Seattle grunge, kind of scruffy, jagged little pill, ripped jeans, you know, flannels. Love the flannels. Kurt Cobain, the whole just kind of edgy, not quite happy with the way life is, but we're going to get through it, Gener- Generation X. I got that and related to it. Generation X was told they would never amount to much. You know, a lot of them were doing drugs in the 70s. I mean, you know, it kind of coming up through that and just the not a lot of hope and just kind of fighting back with that edginess. Gen X, you're not going to amount to much, but millennials, 
Millennials were the promise. Millennials were the generation. We were all told, this generation coming up, oh wow, they're the ones who are going to do it. They're going to take us. They're They're the heroes. This is what sociologists were all saying. Everyone was looking forward to your generation, to what the millennials would do and who they would be. The promise was there. 1997, sociologists Neil Howe and William Strauss, and I think I may even have mentioned them all to you before, fascinating, they wrote a landmark book called The Fourth Turning. And I was at the time teaching youth ministry in a college in Southern California, and in that class, it was one of the textbooks that I used, because it was so fascinating to take a sociological view at this generation that was, that was now coming up. A lot of the guys in the class were Gen Xers who would be then ministering to millennials. And so we would talk about these things. And in this text, what they came up with was what they called four turnings and four generational archetypes. Now, I don't want to get too like bookish here, but you need to understand this. It's so interesting. Howe and Strauss went back 500 years of Western American culture and began to evaluate generation after generation after generation over 500 years. And what they discovered, and they show it vividly in this book, is that there are every four generations we repeat. Every four generations there's an archetype, one, two, three, four, and then the fifth is just like the first. Now I'll describe it to you this way, four archetypes, hero, prophet, artist, and nomad which I know this is it's generic, but from a sociological perspective, each generation took one of those labels and repeated it again and again for 500 years, at least in Western culture. We just keep going right back to the same thing. And you see this overlay. If we could do like transparencies and show the four archetypes and show how they overlay again and again across generations, it's absolutely stunning. But they also pointed at something else, and they called it four turnings. That is, at the end of these four generational patterns, when the new four started up, they called it a turning. In between each one is a turning, but then there's what they call the fourth turning. And you don't have to write any of this down, but process this with me. The four turnings are this. The first generation comes along with a high. second turning is an awakening. The third turning is an unraveling. And the fourth turning is crisis. So we were in Gen X. The unraveling generation. We were coming upon the unraveling turning about to hit the crisis. The fourth turning, now are you tracking with me? Four generations, and at the end of four generations is the fourth turning. And it would kind of turn over then to the next four generations, which would repeat behaviorally and sociologically what happened in the previous generations. And what happens in the fourth turning is crisis. And across 500 years, at every fourth turning, crisis would hit this country. Crisis would hit these people. So I'm in the late 90s, 1997, the book came out, I'm teaching this book, and we're all going, the next turning is around the year 2000. What happened in 2000? 9-11. The war on terror. Global jihad. A world in crisis, and we have not come out of it. We are a world that for the last 17 years... Much of your lives, we have been in this fourth turning. We've been in crisis. We have not come back out of it. We have not come out of crisis to the high and the awakening and then the unraveling and the crisis. We're still in crisis mode. The Afghan wars, the the Iraq war, um, all that 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 took place and and still we're in the throes of this thing. And it's so interesting because it's really throwing off the groove. 
excuse me, you've thrown off the emperor's group. We're, we're suddenly, we're not back in this typical 500-year pattern of these turnings. We're stuck in the fourth turning. Think about these archetypes now, these cultural archetypes. You've got the hero. This would be the GI generation, what they called the great generation. These were the heroes, World War II. These were the young men and women who went across and they fought and they saved this world from the evil of communism and the evil of Hitler and all the horrific things that were taking place. The great generation. Followed then by the second archetype, which is called the prophet generation. But interestingly, that was the silent generation. So we went from heroes to prophet, which suddenly, following World War II, was now a silent generation, they're called. Didn't do much, just kind of came home and and went to work. But they did something when they came home. They began to make babies. (laughs) Enter the third archetype, the boomer generation, and they are the artists. Now again, this is following the, the four archetypes across 500 years. Are you bored of sociology yet? I'm really just getting started. <laughs> but this would follow across 500 years. Hero, prophet, artist, nomad. Hero, prophet, artist, nomad. Each generation falling into this similar category. And so the hero generation totally fit the GIs. Great generation. The prophet generation, the silent. They were more just kind of here back in society. Then the artist generation, the boomers. You know, making the music, having the kids, and those kids are growing up and they're very artistic and, and, and that really did fit with the boomer generation. Then along comes Generation X, the nomads. There's no place for us. We don't fit. Jagged little pill. You know, I mean, that was the, the mentality that, that Alanis Morissette, man, she nailed it. Because that's what everybody in my generation, or at least the generation right after me, if I'm a boom Xer, everybody was feeling that. And in that that place of nomad, guess what that means for millennials? Hero, prophet, artist, nomad, hero. The millennial generation, your generation, is supposed to be the heroes. And no offense to anyone here, because I'm talking in generalities, I'm not talking personally, but I have to ask the question, what happened? Why is the millennial generation not heroic? Again, I'm not saying any one of you are not. There are always heroes and artists and nomads in every generation. Okay, But as a, a, a genre, as a group, as a sociology, where are the heroic millennials? You know, you got John Mayer writing songs like We're Waiting on the World to Change. Why aren't you changing it? Why aren't you making the difference? And this is what sociologists are asking the question. And now, we're, we're supposed to be leaving a crisis and entering a new high with a heroic new generation, but we're still in crisis. And the heroes seem to be waiting. And in the late 2020s, we're supposed to be ushering in what they call the next generation following the millennials. They call it the homeland generation. And this is from Howe and, and uh, Strauss on their website, which is called LifeCourse.com. Just sociologists, not prophecy, it's not Bible, it's just sociologists looking at the world and making uh, investigated determinations. And they write this, By 2020, we expect that a new homeland generation, born circa 2005 to 2030, will begin to come of age as young adults. We tentatively tag them as belonging to the artist archetype, They will strike older Americans as well-educated, well-behaved, risk-averse, and perhaps naive and conformist. In other words, boring, (laughs) dull, doesn't sound like a very exciting generation. This is 
what they're kind of predicting just based on past situations and what they see coming up. Again, it's not prophecy. It's just investigation. It's sociology based on past models and cycles and experience. So again, back to the question, but what's happened to us? What's going on here? Something happened that the sociologists did not account for. And they did not expect that I personally believe completely upturned the model. Where are the millennials? Where's the hero archetype? Millennials don't believe adulthood happens until age 30. That's adulthood. So until age 30, you really can just continue to be a kid. Mary was having Jesus around the age of 13 or 14. You know, that's adulthood. Or that was back in the Bethlehem days. So the age of 30 is now adulthood. It's getting pushed back. Uh, Millennials are referred to by many, no offense again, but referred to as snowflakes. (laughs) You know, in need of safe zones and non-offensive education. I mean, that's, that's what we hear. That's what people talk about. I'm not saying you all because you're here and you're actually willing to think. But another thing about millennials, they're said to have two selves. This, this is very recent. Two selves, the real self and the digital self, which is not the real self, but it's the one we hide behind every time we go on the Internet, every time we use social media. That's the digital self. That's the presentation that I actually hide behind because the real you is now protected digitally, I guess. What happened to the hero? What happened to the one who's charging forward? Again, something that no one saw coming. The info age was completely overswept by the instant age. The digital age. we, We still call it the age of information, but it went from information being something that you went to a library and dug through the files to discover to being at your fingertips. It's, it's, it's right there. Where's my cell phone? Oh no, where's my cell phone? That's called nomophobia. I don't know where my phone is, so I'm freaking out. It's right in the palm of our hands. Anything you want to know, you're watching a show, who is that guy, what movie has that guy been in before? Google. Oh, okay. And you know, you've got instant information. It's the Amazon Prime, immediate delivery, no need to wait, 147 character tweet, digital handheld, virtual age. That's where we are. And suddenly we went from 500 years of this flow of, of repeating uh, patterns to this explosion of information and digital age and things moving at lightning speed and nothing's fast enough. Now we're working on 5G. I don't even know what G is. <laughs> I'm like, my phone works G. You know, but it, it's 5G. I don't... Everything in this generation is now and nothing can wait. There's no... Looking forward. I remember looking forward to Christmas because it was the one of two times a year I would get new toys. Christmas in December and my birthday in September. So on December 26th, it was like, man. But you would wait. It took time. Here's the thing. There is no such thing as instant heroes. Heroes do not just instantaneously pop up. It's it's bred in. It's long-term. It's developed. And into all of this instantaneous, digital, lightning-fast stuff that's happening in our culture, God says to you, God says to me, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk. 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 Are you kidding? I mean, if I don't get a close parking space at Costco... I don't have time to be walking from the back 40. 
There are times I walk out the front door of my house. We have a long driveway, 400-meter driveway. And there are times I walk out of my house and get in my car and drive to my mailbox because I don't have time to take two minutes to walk down there and get the mail and walk back. We don't have time. And God says, yeah, that's the, that's the problem. You need to come for a walk. You slow it down a bit. You want to be the, the hero that you're called to be. Well, have you as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him having been firmly rooted which takes time, and being built up in Him, which takes time, established in your faith, which takes time, as you are instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. And I am not always thankful. Perhaps you're not always thankful for having to wait for anything. I want to take you on a little walk here. And, and just kind of, you can either just listen if you want to try and flip through these scriptures. I'm going to give you a bunch. I'm just going to one after the other here. But they will all be on the recording too, so you can go back and pick them out if you miss one. The first mention of walking in the Bible. Some of you have heard me mention the principle of first mention. I really like that principle. And what it means is if there's a concept, if there's an idea that you're trying to struggle with in Scripture, go and see where it's first written about in Genesis. Because invariably you will find out what it means. Where's the first time that we see the word walk even used in the Bible? It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden because they had eaten the fruit. If they had only been walking with God, it wouldn't have happened. If Eve and Adam had been with God rather than off with the serpent. God walking. That's one of my favorite pictures in all of Scripture. The picture of God Himself walking, the Bible says. In the garden, in the cool of the day. Well, how can God be walking? God is spirit. Yeah, but Jesus is God made flesh. So I will just throw that little nugget out there for you. Was it perhaps Jesus in the garden? God was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And if they had been walking with God, that sin wouldn't have happened. Moving ahead, Genesis 5.24. The next time we see the word, Enoch walked with God. Many of you know how that ended up. Great! He walked with God and he was not for God took him. And until the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 came along, people would read that verse and go, God took him? What does that mean? First man raptured. He was walking with God. Great conversation. Great fellowship. And God said, you know, it's a ways back to your house. Why don't you just come on home with me? And they just kept walking right on home with God. What a marvelous way to end your life here. (laughs) Because you're already walking with God, why stop? And so that's Enoch. Chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. We see Noah, who was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. Right up the plank into the ark. Took him 120 years, by the way, to build the ark. Noah, I've got a plan for your life. It's an important plan. Something I really want you to do. I want you to build an ark. All right, when are we going to get going, Lord? Uh, Right now. Okay, when's the flood going to come? 120 years. 120 years? And I think God was giving the world 120 years to prepare, to hear the message, to have every chance to repent and get on the ark with Noah and the fam. But 120 years, and Noah just walked with God. After the flood... 292 years went by and a man by the name of Terah had a son named Avraham. Actually, Avram. Abraham. 
had him in the pagan region of Babylon, Ur of the Chaldees, and Abraham left there. Avram went from Ur of the Chaldees all the way ultimately landing in the promised land, Canaan's land. The whole time, his entire life, he would spend sojourning with God. He never settled. Abraham never bought land. He bought a cave once, the cave of Machpelah, which was a burial cave. I'll explain why in just a second. But he never settled. He just walked. Genesis 13, verse 17. Arise, God said to Abraham, walk the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. He couldn't have done that in a day. I have stood in the hills of Judea and looked out over the land, the same land where God said, look out, as far as your eye can see, I want you to walk this, it's yours. Mile upon mile of beautiful green hills. And to stand there and look out over it, you're like going, okay, if he's walking the length and the breadth of the land and he's checking out all the boundaries of the land, this is going to take him weeks at least. Well, that's cool because Abraham didn't have a home to go to. He was a sojourner. So he'd walk a little ways, camp out. Walk a little ways, camp out. Walk a little ways and all the time going, wow, God's giving this to me. (laughs) But he never dropped a dollar. He just kept sojourning. Kept waiting on the Lord, walking with the Lord. Genesis 17, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, older than Jim, (laughs) the Lord appeared to Abram and, and said to him, I am God Almighty, get ready to run. No. He said, walk before me. I'm God. Walk before me. 99 year old Abraham. Ultimately, Abraham had a son. Another probably 30 years go by. An old 99-year-old Abraham's son is now roughly 30 years old. Genesis 22, verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. It was a death march. Because Abraham had been told by God, I want you to sacrifice for me your son. And so they started walking. And Isaac's hauling the wood. Abraham's got the fire and the knife. And Isaac's just walking along. Again, Isaac was not a little boy. He was probably in his 30s. And they're walking along together. And we're told in Genesis 22, verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. (laughs) Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And so the two of them, the Bible says, walked on together. So they're still on this walk. We're still on this walk, letting our fingers do the walking through the Scriptures. And they walked up the hill, up the hill called Moriah. Mount Moriah. Today the Temple Mount stands there. In the day of Christ, the cross was perched atop Mount Moriah. I think probably in the same location that Abraham was called to build an altar and sacrifice his son Isaac. He didn't sacrifice his son. You know the end of the story. If you've heard the story of Genesis 22, he raises the knife and God says, Enough. I know now that you trust me. Well, guess what? God knew all along. Abraham didn't know that he trusted God until that moment. And God was allowing Abraham to understand, to realize his faith. God stopped him, but on that same mountain that Abraham and Isaac walked up, on that same mountain, a father did sacrifice his son. Jesus would die there. 2,000 years later. 
Abraham, as he's now called, didn't sacrifice Isaac, but he did teach Isaac to walk with God, and Isaac walked with God. And then Isaac had a son named Yaakov, Jacob, who walked with God until his name got changed to Israel. All these men walking with God, their wives walking with God, and the only property, oh, I told you I'd tell you this, the only property that Abraham ever bought, the cave of Machpelah, as a burial cave. Why? So that, in his resurrection... He can walk out the mouth of the cave and be in the land that God promised him. Receive his inheritance. He died believing he would resurrect. And so he bought the cave because he wanted a quick exit into the land that was given to him. Skip ahead to the end of the beginning, the end of Genesis, and you come to old Yaakov, Jacob. And he's about to bless his sons. Genesis 49 and 50, some of the greatest prophecy in Scripture. This old man blessed his sons, and what we see play out in Israel across history is stunning. But in Genesis 48, he's blessing Joseph, who he's now come back in contact with. And I don't want to bore you with but the whole story. Joseph went down into Egypt and was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then there was a famine, and ultimately Jacob, who thought Joseph was dead, and the brothers, they come down to Egypt, and there's Joseph, and that's the short version. But now, Jacob is close to death, and he wants to, wants to bless Joseph. So he lays his hand on Joseph, and he blesses him. And then he's going to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. And he lays his hands on them like this, crossing his arms and blessing the younger over the older, which is scripturally humorous, but not time to explain why. And in Genesis 48, verse 15, we're told that Jacob blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. What does a shepherd do with a sheep? Drive them? Run? He walks with them. He says, the angel, oh this is interesting, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. What angel can redeem anybody? The word is malak in the Hebrew and it's speaking of Jesus. Jacob recognized Jesus as the redemptive messenger from God. And the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, he says. And may my name live on in them. And the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. You see, the point is this. God loves a good walk. The name of Jacob did live on in his twelve sons, the sons of Israel. To this very day, the twelve tribes of Israel, the name lives on as he sought for it to because Israel has been on a long walk with God. When we were studying these verses in Colossians on uh, Wednesday, I believe it was, or last Wednesday, made the point that God even then took the sons of Israel into the wilderness and made them walk for 40 years to learn how to trust Him. That's how important it is to just walk with God. But who's got time for that now? I mean, taking a walk, power walking maybe. That's okay. Or a 15-minute burn on the treadmill. I can do that. But but to take a long walk, I don't know. Another 2,000 years passed and people were still walking. You realize that Jesus, when He came into the world, He brought the greatest message ever to be heard, ever to be spoken, the gospel, the good news of our salvation, into the world in an age without high-speed internet. Into an age that had no 5G data transmission. 
no social media, no 24-hour news source, no way to get the word out but for one person to tell someone else and for that person to tell someone else for the word to literally be walked out. That's when Jesus chose to come. He could have come right now. He may still. Of course, if he comes right now, he's taking us out and it's over. But he could have come the first time in 2017. God could have looked across history, did look across history, knew where we would be right now, and could have said, wow, you know how fast we could get this message out if we just wait till 2017? Let's show up then, and boom, it'll be a Twitter storm. Trump has nothing on what Jesus could do. He didn't do that. He came at a very slow age. Joseph and Mary, they made a hundred-mile trek from Nazareth down to Bethlehem for his birth. A hundred miles walking. There's no, there, there, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us Mary was on a donkey. Okay, that's folklore. Joseph and Mary most likely just made the walk. That's what people did. That's how you got around. They walked the six miles then from Bethlehem to Jerusalem for the baby dedication. And then back to Bethlehem where they would stay for a couple of years, walk in the land and, and with Jesus and raising them to a toddler. And then the threat came from Herod, so they fled to Egypt. How did they get to Egypt? They booked a, you know, chartered a plane. No, they walked. They walked down to Egypt. When the threat was over, when Herod died, they walked from Egypt all the way back up to Nazareth and settled there and the boy Jesus grew up quietly nobody knew he was under the radar just growing up with his carpenter dad his mom there in, in Nazareth Joseph and Mary's son we all know him that's that Jesus he's, he's nobody special every year three times at least annually they made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem 100 miles they would walk down to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage feast. There were three of them. Pesach, which is the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, that was 50 days later. They had to turn right around and come back. And then the fall Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. They left Nazareth. They would walk all the way down to Jerusalem, enjoy the feast, and all walk, make the pilgrimage back home. Three times a year, every year, on their feet. And for 30 years... Long, slow, uneventful years. Jesus walked the hills of Judea, valleys and the shores of the lower and the upper Galilee. He didn't stray much further than 30 miles from his home except when they went down to Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus' ministry, with the exception of in Jerusalem, all took place within about a 15-mile radius. The whole thing! And as an advisor to God, I would be saying, Lord, that is not how to do this. You've got to move the Word. You've got to get it going. We don't have time for this. Thirty years, we're just walking. And everywhere Jesus went, He walked. Matthew 4.18, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He's just walking by. And He says, hey, Follow me. So they got on their bikes, you know, and they rode off. They just walked. His primary ministry in the Galilee was a walk between three villages. The villages, Capernaum, that's Capernaum, Bethsaida, and uh, Chorazim. Chorazim was about two and a half miles away from Capernaum. Bethsaida was about six miles away. And between the three, there was a triangle. And Jesus just went from one to the other, to the other, to the other, to the other. Sometimes he made his way out to Cana in Galilee, about 16 miles west of there. 
Sometimes he returned down to Nazareth, not often after his after being kicked out, but he would go back down to Nazareth on occasion. That's about a 27-mile journey. In Israel, we did this tri-city trek one day. We, we planned it on the tour. I was I was real excited to teach in Capernaum, Bethsaida, and uh, and Chorazim, all three. And do them kind of in order and kind of follow Jesus' steps. And so we got on the bus and we got to Capernaum and we did the teaching there. And we went around Capernaum and we got back on the bus. And we went then over to Bethsaida, a little bit further out, six miles, and settled there and we did some teaching there and walked around Bethsaida. Then we got back on the bus, shot over to Chorazim, ended the day there, more teaching at Chorazim. And by the time we were done, we were beat. And we had a bus! You guys remember that? I mean, and, and I, was, I was dead set. We're going to do all three in one day. And it was, it was not an easy task. Usually groups go to Capernaum. Forget the other two. And we did all three and went through that. And it was exhausting. It was wonderful. I enjoyed it. But Jesus spent three years walking between these three villages, primarily three times a year down to Jerusalem walking everywhere he went, slowly teaching the Word. People started to come out of the woodwork. They started to hear the Word taught. They started to want to hear the Word. They got hungry for the Word. The Word began to get implanted. Lives were being changed. People were being healed. And he's just walking. He's just walking. In Capernaum, Jesus healed the lame man. Remember what he said? Matthew chapter 9, verse 5. Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. And then there was the night Jesus took a shortcut um, across the Sea of Galilee. (laughs) He was still walking, just this time on water, you know. It's just absolutely marvelous. And my favorite reference verse to Jesus walking on water, Mark chapter 6, verse 48. This cracks me up every time I read it. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. <laughs> Isn't that the best? I mean, can you get into the mindset of Jesus there? I'm, I'm going to beat him to the other side. <laughs> And when, and when they get to the beach, I'm going to be standing there. What's up, guys? Whoa! You know? And he intended, he wasn't, he was really just kind of doing his thing. But he saw him straining at the oars, and the compassion of Christ pours out. So he goes, hey, guys. And they're like, whoa, it's a ghost. And they're freaking out, you know, until he points out that it's him. But you know what that indicates about Jesus? He's walking across the sea. He intends to pass by them. That tells me a couple of things. One, that Jesus was never about the show. He wasn't walking on the water to show off. He was walking on the water to get to the other side. Because he had already sent them on ahead and there weren't any boats available. So, okay, off he goes. wasn't about the show. The other thing it tells me about Jesus is he's probably done this before. Ever think about that? That maybe he didn't just walk across the Galilee once, but had done it many times. It was a normal walk for Jesus, but nobody knew. (laughs) Just made it a little easier on him. I'll meet you guys over at Bethsaida. Wow, it's a long walk for you, Lord. Yeah, I'll be there. Whatever the case, Jesus walked. And oftentimes, Jesus walked way out of his way because he had an appointment that nobody understood that he had. Like when he met with the woman at the well, that Sikhar, Jacob's well, that was way out of his way. That was off the beaten path. That was not where they were headed at the time. But Jesus had an appointment, so he walked there. Or the time he went up to Tyre and Zidon to come back around down to the Galilee, well, that's like Lebanon, gang. I mean, that's way north. 
He had to go up there. Why? Because there was a Syrophoenician woman up there who needed some healing, whose daughter needed some healing. Jesus made the trek. He went out of his way. He walked where he needed to go, always the right place at the right time, tires iron, down to the Decapolis, over to Jacob's well, out of his way to meet people in their need that he knew needed him. And he walked. And what's marvelous about all of this is not just that Jesus walked, but listen, because this impacts us directly. Not only did Jesus himself walk, who walked with him? The disciples did. What a marvelous training course. I think about this often. When we are actually walking around Israel, walking around you know, the Galilee, I imagine them just walking. There's this marvelous path called the Arbel Path. And the Arbel Pass, uh, actually, it's, it's, it's a beautiful walk. It's got a stream that runs along it. And it's the way that you get from Nazareth through this ravine all the way up into the Galilee. It spills out right at this little city called Magdala where Mary, Mary Magdalene is from. And you walk that path, and on the one side are the cliffs of Arbel, Mount Arbel, on the other side is Mount Natai, and, and in between them you come out, and then there's the Sea of Galilee before you. Jesus did that walk. And the apostles, the disciples with him, camping out, talking. We don't have even a, a, a one-hundredth, probably not a thousandth of the things that Jesus taught the apostles. We have what he gave us. But all the conversations... I think Peter is probably very thankful that all the questions he asked are not. <laughs> you know, the things that came up and that they shared and discussed. Jesus, what do you think about this? You know, and he's always just walking and chatting. I mean, what a wonderful way to be with the Lord. That's the picture that he gives us. When he says, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. That's the picture. Three years walking, being with. They would get up in the morning and they'd cook fish and bread by the campfire. And they would walk all day long and then something miraculous would happen and they'd be stunned. And then they'd be back at the campfire that night talking to Jesus as if nothing had happened. Realizing, you know, 50 lame, blind, and and deaf people are now running around healed and, and we're making s'mores with Jesus. And it's so real and so common walking with the Lord. And walking, and walking. Jesus only stopped walking in the weeks right before His death. In fact, we're told in John 11, verse 54, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. He went away from there to the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, where He stayed with the disciples. And so He kind of huddled there in the last couple of weeks. But the day came, and listen to this, as Mark records it, Mark 10, 32 They were going on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking. This is the first time you see this in Scripture. Jesus was walking on ahead of them. He's not in among them. He's not doing the casual walk of Jesus. He's not doing the teaching thing. He's out ahead. He is determined. He is heading for Jerusalem. He's on His way. And we're told they were amazed. They're amazed because this was not characteristic of Jesus to be out driving this thing. He was always just with them. Now he's out there ahead. They were amazed. Those who followed, it says, were fearful. Why? Because they're going to Jerusalem and the death threats are plentiful. You go there, Lord, you're going to die. And so he was saying to them, telling them, took the twelve aside, what was going to happen to him. 
Mark 10.33, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Guys, that's where we're going, and he's out front. And he's walking, but he's walking with determination straight to his death. Upon coming to Jerusalem, we're almost done with this walk. Upon coming to Jerusalem, Jesus accepted the one ride of his entire lifetime. Think about this. We see nowhere else in the scripture where Jesus took a ride until he got to Jerusalem and he got on the back of a donkey's foal. And he fulfilled prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he rode that donkey in. The only ride we see Jesus take. And he gets off the donkey, and he spends five or six days walking in Jerusalem until ultimately he came to the final walk before his death, the walk to the cross. He walked to Calvary. No rush, no hurry, right on time. The walk. And then our resurrection Sunday, well, of course, he walked again right out of the tomb. And then that afternoon, he's walking on the road to Emmaus, disguised so that the guys who are walking with him, Cleopas and another guy, are walking, and Jesus just kind of shows up and says, Hey, what's up? And they're like, Don't you even know what's happened here lately? And they're like, What? <laughs> Jesus, I mean, it's just, he's classic. It's almost as funny as the walking on the water and intending to walk right on by. What's happening, guys? Says the once crucified three days ago Savior. What's the big buzz? Hey, the, the, we thought this guy was Messiah and he died, and, and, and now there are people who are saying he resurrected, and Jesus is going, oh yeah. This is going to be great. And of course, reveals himself to them by breaking bread. But gang, it's, it's just Jesus. In fact, it wasn't until after that that he started teleporting. <laughs> You know, we see the, the resurrection scenes where he's here, and then he's there, and then he's over there. And I don't know that he was walking at that point. I think he was just going, ah, I got that date in the Galilee with the guys on the beach. I'll, I'll be right back. Bang, and he's there the rest of the time. Until he was resurrected, glorified, he was walking. Are you getting the point? I mean, this is a, this is a one-point teaching, and it's about as basic as it gets. Walk. The Bible does not use words like gigabytes. The Bible does not use 5G. It doesn't use speeds. It uses words like perseverance, endurance, long-suffering, patience, waiting. These are biblical words. Not driving, rushing, hurrying, freaking. No. Chill. Walk. And so Paul writes, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, let me ask you the question, how did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? How hard was that? And the moment that faith turned in your heart, if in fact it had, and if it hasn't, we need to talk about that. But the moment you said to Jesus, you are my Lord, how hard was that? As you received Him, keep walking in that. That same simple, easy faith that started you on the journey in the first place. So walk in Him having been, and He says, firmly rooted. How does a tree get firmly rooted? Well, it's going to take some time. 
there is got to dig down and they got to go deep and you need seasons and you need the rain and you need the soil and you need the nutrients and it takes time to get firmly rooted intend my friends to be firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith these are again long term words building and establishing and rooting just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude, which tells me that while we're walking and while we're being established and while we're growing, we're so thankful we get to do this. And I am not today what I fully hope I will be next year, but I'm so thankful I get to be where I am right now. I think this message in this generation is vital, that it takes time and that you are to walk with the Lord and not rush ahead of where He has you. We started the bridge 13 years ago, 13 and a half years, that this church began. In a living room, then moved into the barn, 11 years in a hay barn, literally having church. It was great. And then God provided this, which still blows my mind. And we've been in this building now a couple of years. When we started, um, we opened up Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I said, okay, here's the deal. God's told me we're going to teach through the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, here we go. We did two verses that night. And I started to have people say to me, wait, wait, you're teaching through the whole Bible? Yeah, and we're going to do that in Genesis through Revelation. That's going to take years! I'm like, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and then we got done with Genesis. It took about a year to do Genesis, and then we did Exodus. That was another year. We're 13 and a half years and we're in the book of Colossians. Do you realize that by my, my calculations, we will finish the Bible in about a year and a half? But we never would have gotten there if we didn't start walking. We didn't rush from Genesis to Revelation. We didn't do overviews of each book. Okay, here's Genesis, one teaching. Here's Exodus, one teaching. Here, you know, and that's fine. Sometimes that's important to do it that way just to kind of get that overview. But the point is this. People said, and I thought, it's kind of ridiculous to set a course to teach through the Bible, knowing it could be 15 or 20 years, but now we're on this end of it, and I'm going, how did we get here? We just started walking. Simple, but gang, to me it is a profound realization that if we hadn't started walking, we would not have gotten where we are. And in the life, in the position that you are at right now, and you guys are all in very different places, mostly though in, in your 20s, some early 20s, some later 20s. Uh, obviously, some of us way past 20s. That's okay. But, but you're in different places, some on the verge of a career, some in the midst of a career, some on the front end trying to figure out what the career is going to be and all of that. And you're saying, man, I just wish I could be there. And God says, you will. Just walk. You cannot be today what your heart desires to be, even in the Lord. You are only today who you are in the Lord today. You will be there. You will get to that place. Do you realize there are only two instantaneous uh, occurrences in the believer's walk? There are two things that happen in an instant when you're saved. When you say, Jesus, I accept you as Lord and Savior, you are saved instantaneously. And then you start walking. And the only other instantaneous moment that I can find is when you are eternally changed. In an instant, the, the word is atomos, which means the splitting of an atom. I mean, it's so tiny. In a moment, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And that's instantaneous. 
instantaneous salvation, instantaneous change, and a long walk in between. Just walk. Walk in the Lord. We are invited to do that. And we will get there. And you do not know today what you're going to know in a decade should the Lord give us that much time. But you'll get there if you would just walk with the Lord. One final verse. Isaiah 40, verse 30 says, Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, so there will be heroic things that take place. They will run and not get tired. So there will be moments where things move faster than you expected. But I love how it ends. They will walk and not become weary. And you have been invited by Jesus to go for a long walk. And I can think of nothing better to do with a life. Lord, help us to walk with you. Give us the simple faith. Take away, Father, stress striving, agitation, ambition. Remove from us, Father, all those things that the world tells us you've got to move now, you've got to move quick, you've got to have it instantly. Give us the patience that leads to thanksgiving. Give us, Father, the endurance that leads to real joy. And Father, give us the wherewithal just to keep walking with You. In Jesus' name, Amen.